Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to another fantastic edition of the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, Oscars were last night uh, by the time that this is uh, is put out, and we are still kind of in the midst of our Oscar movie exploration. I don't know how many more uh, we're, we're going to kind of explore between me and Chase. We still have to uh, figure out what else is worth it. But, you know, once the Oscars have uh, have been finished, maybe that'll give us some hints of what was really, really good and we had to uh, had to see. And as I've always already mentioned, I am, of course, joined by my lovely co-host, the incomprehensible Chase Redshirt King Wassener. Chase, how are you doing today, buddy? I, I'm doing well. Uh, I incomprehensible is uh, a a worrying adjective to give someone who's who's doing audio for a living. I hope that people can comprehend. Um, I do love uh, I, I do love this time of year because we do get uh, a lot of good uh, Oscar stuff uh, to look into that I wouldn't otherwise. I think I've probably watched more Oscar films than you. Um, uh, and that I, I've seen Belfast at this point. I have seen Drive My Car at this point. Um, and by the time that people are listening to this, I, I will have seen uh, Licorice Pizza as well. So uh, I am I am fully engaged in that Oscar season. Um, and while I don't think I will be able to talk you into watching the three-hour Japanese film, uh, I am glad that I was able to talk you into watching uh, Nightmare Alley, which uh, is going to be what we talk about today. Yes. Well, I do remember when it came out, it was on the list of like, oh, hey, we should go see these. Uh, but then there were so many other movies that sort of came out at that time that I don't think either of us managed to go see it in the theaters. Um, so I did. I watched it uh, with my girlfriend once it came out onto HBO here um, last week. Uh, and yeah, we have thoughts. We're going to discuss them. Um Chase, just right out the gate, like we normally start with, what were your initial kind of expectations going into the movie and just what were your sort of initial thoughts coming out of it? Uh, well, first, heading in, uh, I love Guillermo del Toro. I, I find his work to be uh, always fascinating, always uh, dynamically shot, well put together. You know, he he manages to do such a weird um, mix of things, right? Because you get things uh, like Crimson Peak or you get things like uh, Pan's Labyrinth that are very dark and moody and atmospheric. Um, you can get uh, films like Shape of Water that are um, not quite a rom-com, but at least shares a lot of those elements. And then you can get things like uh, like Pacific Rim or Hellboy 2 that are just sheer fun. And no matter what genre that he picks, he seems to have a deep understanding of it in a way that really highlights the, the things that make the genre strong. And so I saw that he was attached to this, and I saw that this was a movie uh, about a con man, and I knew that things were going to be fun. Uh, and having now seen the film, I can confirm uh, that it was a very uh, 
Fun, probably not the right word, given the tone of the film, but certainly a fascinating film, a captivating film, and one that I am very glad that I saw, because I think there are some really good uh, and really interesting uh, acting performances on display in in a, a film that's very well put together. Well, I think the word incomprehensible now fits uh, because there are some words in there that I just, I can't really agree with. Um, My initial impressions were, I really love the movie, The Prestige. Like, I unabashedly love that movie. I think Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are just fantastic foils on each other. Uh, It is the only movie I think I've ever bought off of Amazon just because I couldn't find it on a streaming service anywhere. Uh, But I digress. When I first saw the trailers for this movie, I was like, oh, that's kind of like magician-y. I'm kind of like, oh yeah, Bradley Cooper is kind of like magician, you know, carnival sideshow stuff. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, And then I got into the movie and I was like, oh, okay. This wasn't what I expected, but I'm like, I'm kind of here for it. I got it. And then the scene with Willem Dafoe and Bradley Cooper, where they talk about how to make a geek happens. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, shit, I know the ending now. Mm -hmm. And... I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that it's fine to kind of give, you know, tip the hand, so to speak, um, you know, that early on in the, in the movie. And, and it's very obvious kind of the story that they are going to tell here, but for it to be tipped that obviously, um, I stopped feeling clever watching the movie. I stopped feeling like it was something for me to unpack and unravel And instead, it just became a trip where I'm the passenger and I'm sitting in the back seat and I'm kind of just waiting for the, you know, to get to the destination. And don't get me wrong, there are some very nice, uh, you know, uh, roadside attractions, so to speak. And there are some very, very pretty, um, pretty scenery to look at. And I know, you know, my partner and I, we you know, shared some back and forth of like pointing out which scenes were shot in Buffalo, New York and which buildings were they and where this was. And, oh, if we're sort of basing this loosely on Buffalo, New York, then maybe this character is this person or this character is this person, you know, so on and so forth. Um, And I, I felt cheated. I felt cheated because... I really had my expectations set for, oh, this is going to be a smart movie. Like, th- this is talking about sort of the rise and fall of man and and uh, how we treat people. And there was sort of this supernatural and spirituality sort of woven into it. And then that one scene happens and it broke my immersion completely. Um, that's not to say it's a bad movie. I'm not going to say it's a bad movie. But at that point, the Oscar bait revenant comparisons started to suck me in um but before we kind of get into like the plot in and of itself i do want to talk about del toro because i i love del toro as a director and there is such a you know it's a del toro movie or a del toro project the moment you see it what what do you like why is del toro the only director that could have made this film in particular 
there there's just certain style shots that that you really uh love to see i i think he does a really good job of of uh getting the full scope of a scene and showing you just the right bits in order to give you um kind of give you what's coming i i do agree for the record that it is not a subtle film when it comes to where we are ultimately going but each scene along the way has its moment that grabs you seeing the geek and and how uh, punishing that job is and how he's treated and the desperation and whatnot. Like the lighting there is perfect. The set design is perfect. The shots are well angled such that you get uh, the most impact for what you have. There's, there's just a craft to everything Del Toro does that is uh, on display in this kind of uh, holistic way. All of these different pieces of the film help each other. And it's it's it understands what each scene needs in order to add the tension or the um, uh, whatever the atmosphere is that it's particularly going to. Um, you get these moments uh, that really, you know, shine. And I, I think that it's it, it comes down to. Uh, understanding how to get the most out of the actors that he has out of the sets that, that he has to work with and in uh, understanding what it is about those characters that makes them captivating, you know? Uh, and this is a, a movie in which I, I think it comes through uh, the most uh, in terms of power dynamics. Uh, you see a lot of characters who, because of uh, alcoholism or um, because of their, uh, you know, age, desperation, whatever it is, um, you know, the power dynamic is both, uh, you know, it, it's in the dialogue, it's in the performances, but it's also in the way that everything is shot. And you get these moments, um, like with the psychologist, um, you can tell when the scene shifts from being Stan, Bradley Cooper's character, in charge and trying to command things, and when Kate Blanchett's character, Lilith, takes over, everything about the scene mirrors the kind of emotional back and forth that they are going into and the vulnerability uh, that uh, Stan has in that moment. Um, the, it's those little touches that really go a long way with Del Toro. I would absolutely agree. And I think Del Toro really, like when he uses inspiration from that sort of this period of American history from the twenties into the forties and the architecture and the color palette, he, it just makes everything sort of pop in just the right way. There is, there's sort of like a filter that is over all Del Toro pieces that mutes like more vibrant colors and enhances the sharpness of the darker colors in a way that helps those brighter colors stand out without them being bright. Um, and it, just the fact that like the period that it's set in is so incredibly important to American history, this sort of very tail end of the great depression as we head into world war two and sort of the, the um, desperateness 
of America as a whole, and, and particularly sort of the working class of America, and the very stark contrast that you have at that moment with the working class and the ultra-wealthy that have somehow survived this Great Depression. Because it wasn't really, like, it wasn't the ultra-ultra-wealthy that truly suffered during the Great Depression. Sure, were there millionaires and that, that, you know, went out of business and, and lost all their money and made some bad decisions? Absolutely. But when you look at the pinnacle of population that existed at that time, it is a very stark contrast between them and the, you know, dust bowl out in the middle of nowhere in, you know, Kansas or the Midwest or wherever where, you know, Stan seems to come from. And that contrast is shown extremely well when you look at, you know, the carnival and where they finally settle down for that, you know, 10 shows under one tent uh, area where um, where the, the seer is when Stan first meets her versus the office of, of Lilith and the, uh, you know, palatial estate of Ezra Grindle. And Del Toro does a really great job in just capturing that and really highlighting sort of the difference in standing that these people have and ultimately what Stan is trying to turn himself into um, by, you know, being a con artist. Because at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's what Stan is. He's not a magician. He's a con artist. He's doing this, this mentalism and is reading people and is tricking people into believing that he can help solve their problems. And then because he sees money and his, you know, the, the dollar signs pop up in his eyes, he breaks the one rule that, uh, the, the seer and the, uh, and, uh, the man that taught him how to do this mentalism, you know, told him is don't never do a spook show, never convince them that you can actually talk to dead people. And if you accidentally do it, admit that it's all, Hey, I'm just reading you, you know, this is all a trick. But he gets in with with the wrong people. How do you sort of view that that portrayal of con artistry at this time? Because, like I said, this is you know right at the tail end of the Great Depression, and people across the board are desperate. Yeah, it's it's the classic flying too close to the sun, right? And you get how he gets there, right? You you see, uh, he's down on his luck, having just come back from, uh, well, burning a. a house to the ground which we find out later uh what's been going on there uh and when that's recontextualized it's like oh okay yeah he's always been that guy good to know um it it really sets this idea of like a guy who is uh desperate at first And, and 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 i think the thing that really makes stan's character arc work for me is that when you first meet him He's very quiet. He's kind of taking everything in. He's listening rather than taking a very active approach. And so you see moments where you think he's going to go one way. Like he sees the geek and how he's the geek's being treated. And you you read that silence is like, oh, he feels uncomfortable. Maybe he doesn't think that that's acceptable. Or maybe that's like, this is the point in which he's like, this is not for me because this environment isn't what I, I want to be a part of. And then you see, like, oh, no, he has no problem with that whatsoever. He's very happy to take that job. And is, is it a job that he takes because it's um, a, a job that he feels like he needs to take, both because jobs are probably at a premium at this time and because he is uh, running away from his past life? Or is it because he sees an opportunity? 
Um, and, and as you get to know the character, it's like, oh, he sees opportunities in everybody. He's constantly looking for a way to take advantage of, of different things. And he does not care who he has to hurt to get there, which, you know, that's kind of the, the classic con artist move, right? Is, is, you know, being charismatic enough and, um, having enough of an understanding of people, which you get by sitting back and listening and watching and reading the faces and whatnot, um, you get enough of that uh, that you can understand how Bradley Cooper gets away with it. And to be honest, I mean, he looks like Bradley fucking Cooper. Of course he does, right? Like, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the hot person privilege that, that you get when, um, you know, a, a charismatic person who is attractive says and does the right things. And, you know, you, you certainly get that that element where the con is never enough, right? It's never satisfying enough to just be good at what you do. You have to be the best at it. You have to make the most money from it. And whatever it takes to get there, that is the classic uh, flying too close to the sun uh, that leads to a comeuppance that you're going to get from these kinds of con artist characters and seeing how that plays out, seeing how that um, makes his life kind of unravel uh, across the board in the second and third acts, um, I, I, I think really work because they take enough time in that early stage of the film to let you try to figure him out so that when it clicks, you're like, Oh, that's the guy. Okay. Yep. That's, that's how we get to where we're going. Um, which again, do you know where this film is going pretty early on? Absolutely. Did that bother me? Not in the slightest because the kind of character that they built, it was inevitable and, and moving towards that can still work if the performances are interesting enough and the, the character is doing interesting enough things uh, to keep you engaged, um, which for for con artists like this in this era, um, the bar for me is not particularly high. I, I got I got what I wanted out of it for sure. I think that you you make that point of that he is desperate for a job when he first comes across the carnival. I think is important, but I think it's also very important ultimately to where the movie ends up. Which you know, spoiler alert, we will discuss that in a moment. But he is not so desperate at that point um like sure does he sells the you know the radio that he has with you which that opening scene immediately gave me telltale heart vibes mm -hmm. like immediately just the the imagery of the open floor and then you know throwing what is you know quite obviously a body down there and then lighting it on fire i think is a brilliant touch yes but just that that the evocation right there off the bat of he's tossing the body down there it's like this man did something bad mm -hmm. and i liked that at the beginning you didn't quite know what it was you didn't know who he would have thrown down there and for it to be you know sort of a middle-aged man in this time period it, it was very easy to be like, oh, it's a woman, like it's his wife, his, you know, his wife died. Now, whether he killed her or she died on his own, on her own, like, ooh. And then obviously, you know, later on in the film, we find out that it was his father. And there is sort of a, like, moral gray area of, well, did he really kill him? Was that really murder? 
or was it in a sick way mercy? It sort of leaves it up to the viewer to decide. I I would argue uh, that he, I mean, he knew when he was opening up that window that he was killing his dad. And hypothermia is a thing, you know, there's no, in like, you know, uh, heating system that's going to, uh, push back against that once once you have the window open and you take away that blanket like i i would argue that it is uh clearly purposeful by the time we get to the last scene and we can really see it um and the attitude he has towards his dad that really gets expanded upon as the movie goes on in this complicated relationship he has with alcohol and uh, how he never drinks um because uh, he saw what it did to his dad. And of course, like that sets up when he eventually uh, his ego gets too big and he feels untouchable. That's when uh, Lilith, Kate Blanchett's character, is able to kind of sucker him into drinking. And that is the start of his downfall. Um, and and you can kind of see like how he takes on that that element of, of his father and the thing that he he hated. Now, certainly, um, we don't know. His father does not seem to have been in a good place before the hypothermia. So it's not like, um, you know, uh, you can say that. Uh, I, I see what you're saying in the argument of like, you know, how actively is he trying to uh, murder this man uh, to uh, to kill him or to get it over with if the man is dying anyway? Um, but it is like a cruel way to kill somebody, right? If you're just going for a mercy killing, you don't do it via exposure to extreme cold, you know? And it seems very deliberate that there is not an actual like deep discussion about his relationship with his father. It is more of a just like we had a bad relationship. He was an alcoholic. But like there isn't a lot in terms of like, well, what? you can assume his father was probably an angry drunk or, or, you know, a useless drunk or something just because of the sort of venomous hatred that he has. Uh, you know, there's very little mention of his mother, you know, long-term scope of, you know, that relationship or what the relationship between his mother and his father was. Um, that I think then makes sort of the, like, paternal relationships that he creates with clem and pete you know pretty uh pretty poignant and really sticks you know sticks out because it does seem like they teach him things they they take that fatherly role of you know clem teaches him kind of how to be a carny just like in general and how to how the that business works and then pete again teaches him this sort of mentalism thing and is the one who warns him about like flying too close to the sun you know i i that will be your downfall you know there's a reason i stopped doing this is because i started believing in it uh you know so on and so forth and i think all of that is really really good that is really, really good character work by Bradley Cooper. He does play a very, he does a very good job when he doesn't talk of portraying emotions and portraying sort of what his character is thinking or doing. Uh, the, I mean, again, we want to talk about there's not subtlety in the movie. When Pete is underneath the, the stage and is like, can you go get me a bottle? 
And this is, you know, five minutes after Clem has told him, hey, this is the bottle of the alcohol and this is the bottle of the poison. It's like, well, you want to become a mentalist and take that book. I wonder which bottle you're going to grab. <laughs> yeah. And that I it, and I hate I hate to say it's obvious, but it is. Yeah. So many of the plot points are just obvious. And I I wanted I wanted more suspense. I wanted more, you know, really having to think about some of these moments. Like, of course he killed her. Like, I get it. But, like, why did you have to make it so straightforward that that happened? You know? Why isn't it that he's like, oh, hey, we need need both. I need both of the bottles, you know, because I need this, because I need to re-varnish the stage, but I also want the, the, you know, corn alcohol myself. Like, just, just give me a little little tiny bit more subtlety so that when i leave the movie theater there are moments that i go wait what what was hidden like something was hidden in that scene that i missed in a way that just like i i hate to do it but i have to compare this to you know the other big oscar nomination that sort of is this same style of flying too close to the sun movie in the power of the dog i mean i missed the plot on that movie entirely, but I still felt really intelligent coming out of it and finding all these little, you know, threads and tying everything together and going, oh, wow, that's really cool that that's how that ended up paying off and that ended up paying off and that ended up paying off. And I just feel like the threads they put in this movie for a payoff are, they're, they're, they're neon yellow. They're just super bright yellow and are like, hey. I got, I got this little thing for you. Do you want to pull on it and see where it leads? Where Power of the Dog, it was so well woven into everything else that you could clearly miss moments. Yeah. It, I mean, it was like, I, I agree with you completely that uh, something the Power of the Dog does really well uh, is that it has those like subtle uh, references that if you're not paying attention very closely you can entirely miss and everything still works like the, the bodybuilder magazines, right? Like you think about that in context and it's, it's the first moment that you realize like, Oh, there's a kind of a, a, a gay angle to this and that's going to come up later. Um, but you can also get it in a, a different angle when you hear the, the stories about his uh, cowboy idol, right. And the relationship that they had and you get from those context clues, like you get to the same place from multiple directions and it's the way those things interlink that is quite strong. This is not that a hundred percent. This is a film in which everything has a very clear purpose. The traps that are in front of you uh, that are in front of, of Bradley Cooper's character are not subtle. Uh, There's not a moment in which, you say to yourself, like, oh, I wonder where we're going with this. Um, you you know what is inevitable, but that's, to me, part of what makes it uh, engaging, is that you see all of these traps laid out, and you see the kind of person that you would need to be in order to ignore all of those obvious warning signs and move forward anyway. This is a guy who is told to his face multiple times, if you do this, this other terrible thing is going to happen. And he ignores it because of course he does. He has to. 
um, because he's the kind of person who would never see that warning. And you, you see, you know, you have the moment like you described with the, the poison bottle versus the beer bottle. And you know that as soon as he does that, he is crossing a road you cannot uncross. But the fact that his character is built that way uh, is the kind of person who would gladly make that trade to kill somebody for uh, a momentary move up the, the ladder. Um, it says, it tells us a lot about the characters that these things are looked past, that they fall into these traps, knowing that they are traps, being told explicitly that they are traps, but because there is this uh, inevitability uh, of these forces that drive them, that make them captivating. And it makes the um, the few turns that um, are maybe slightly less obvious uh, hit that much harder. Like the depth to which Kate Blanchett's character is playing Bradley Cooper's character is just beautiful. Kate Blanchett did an incredible job in this film. I love everything about her performance. I could watch her be a manipulative psychiatrist all day long. Um, she's so damn smart. And, and you get that that moment, right? Those those little clues that she's in control, the little clues that she knows how to manipulate him with the alcohol to uh, lead him into thinking that he is the smart one by leaving very obvious traps, like leaving the keys uh, on, uh, on her desk so that he can uh, easily make a copy of them. And of course, he doesn't think highly enough of other people to realize how stupid it is to believe that that had been done on accident, you know? Um, whether that is disqualifying for this movie, I, I think has a lot to do with what you want from a film like this. I am the kind of person who does not believe that twists are necessary for a film to be good. In, in fact, if you're writing a screenplay well, um, you should be able to, once you have the facts available to you, you should be able to trace back and see where things went up. And, and to have a twist for the sake of having a twist rather than um, because narratively that is the best way to convey certain bits of information, I, I think is a, a trap that certain films fall into. Uh, and it's not to say that it can't be done well. Plenty of films have. Power of the Dog, as you mentioned, is one that handles that very well. Um, but I don't consider it a knock on this film that it's not trying to be that because the set pieces that they play with while obvious are fun. They're captivating. They give us the, the inevitable fall from grace that is emotionally satisfying because we've seen the kind of ruthless self-centered character and the ego that he has built and the actions that he has taken where that fall to becoming a geek himself at the very end there is incredibly satisfying. It's really it, it it all works because it's because the, he they've sold it every step of the way and and to me that's more important than being surprised uh is is believing that the the journey that we are on is interesting and that it is being played well in a way that is believable and captivating and there was never a moment to me where knowing what happened what was going to happen made what happened less interesting.
I I totally totally understand where you're coming from, and and when I bring up my fault with it of of the obviousness, that is not to be a, it. I am not criticizing this movie to say it's a bad movie, it's a waste of time, it's as bad as the Revenant. I'm not saying it in that manner. But the problem is, is that when you are nominated for Best Picture and you are going up against a film like The Power of the Dog, which does the story you're telling, granted, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's character does not start from as low as Bradley Cooper does in in this movie, as Stan does. But when you're telling that same story of sort of the fall from grace and being manipulated by an, you know, another individual into your ultimate demise... And that other movie does it better. I can't help but compare them. So I don't want to. I don't want to say this movie is bad. This is still a good movie. In a year where Power of the Dog did not exist, I wouldn't have these criticisms of sort of obvious plot points and obvious threads going forward because the movie is really well shot. It is. It is. It is a gorgeously shot pretty well-paced movie um it does tell a good story it is a very strong story and the the acting and the character work by the characters i popped so hard when ron perlman came out because i fucking love ron perlman and i know guillermo del toro does too like that was awesome when willem dafoe came out i was like whoa wait you got ron perlman and willem dafoe in this movie that's wild yeah and like they they both have very supporting actor characters, but they play them to a T. This is a very, very technically good across-the-board movie as a whole. But at some point, you have to then say, cool, across-the-board, it's awesome. Or, you know, it's great. Uh, I'll say it's great. What then kicks it up to awesome? And it's that little, it's that little pinch of nutmeg on the top that it's missing with some more of those little nuances which isn't to say that there aren't some nuances that caught me entirely off guard. You can't tell me, spoiler alert, that Kate Blanchett at the end of this movie doesn't not ki- like she doesn't kill Stan on purpose. Yeah. She lets him live on fucking purpose. And and I I forget the exact line myself, but like she she has that little thing before she shoots him and she's like didn't my handbag feel heavy and then pulls out the gun and shoots him in the ear that is that is a twist i did not see coming mm-hmm. um like that was that was awesome and then then you know he's on the ground he he doesn't know what to do because he's been caught off guard he has finally been gamed in reality really gamed because i don't think uh Molly Rooney Mara's character like collapsing and not being able to pull off the con on Ezra. Um, I don't think that's really what gets him. It's that he he gets betrayed by the new girl that he decided he was going to, you know, the new Mark, because, uh, you know, Molly is a Mark, and then Lilith is a Mark, and he just gets outplayed and realizes, oh shit, I'm done. Like, there's, there's literally nothing, there's no way out of this situation for me. I've been completely conned that, that, you know, that 30 seconds to a minute long piece of the movie is if they had one or two more of those moments sprinkled across the movie, it would really be up there with power of the dog in terms of like fighting for that top spot. Um, It is the best scene in that film that when she says the, the, like, you know, I loved you. 
Um, and he takes the moment and is like, no, like, like realizes like, well, she's clearly that that's clearly bullshit. Um, I and loved she has the, like, you. oh, was that too strong? And it's like, oh, here we go. Here we go. And she explained it so thoroughly. You know, she understands how to use all of these tools available. And again, you, you like it, it's it's her control over the situation is foreshadowed well. But Kate Blanchett just she plays the the powerful woman putting a man in his place better than just about any actress working today. Um, I could watch. I, I, I could have watched her in 10 more scenes and I would have had a great time. Like she's incredibly captivating and it just, ugh, it's such a nice, uh, a, a nice move. And I also, I will say uh, as another kind of like, um, fun moment there when you see the, the first, uh, set of people that he, uh, he did the, the spook show for. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, everything there worked out okay. And then the mom <laughs> commits a murder suicide, and it's like, well, maybe oh it didn't. God. Maybe it oh, did not. That was great. I did not see so that coming, good. but it felt right. You know, that was that was just like, oh shit, we're doing that. Okay, yeah, we're we're here. So, so that I agree. I didn't necessarily see that coming, but something had to happen to show that Stanton had lost had lost the the threat had mm-hmm. lost the rails and ultimately i thought that moment actually was going to be molly wasn't going to show up that it that in reality she wasn't going to turn out to be the ghost and i thought for maybe a moment that that lilith would then show up that she knew molly would flake and she's going to show up and that's how she gets her revenge on ezra is that he's in this vulnerable moment and then she like kills him or whatever and then that's where everything goes off the rails but the fact that it's Stan, the fact that she completely manipulated this entire situation from the moment she went to his mentalism show to the moment where she shoots him is is, is it's a it's very well done. It is out conning a con man in the best way and not only do you one up this man that had like the audacity to be like, I know people, I know you, I, you know, I can read you like a book, but then you also get revenge on this man that like brutally disfigured you. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I, beyond that, like, we don't know how many other women, but like, he's a monster. Like, how many more women did Ezra kill? And she's not only... She's just getting revenge for herself because this man had the audacity to, like, take away from her. It, It... you can speak the world about how well Kate Blanchett does it, but that is also some really fucking good writing for that character. Mm-hmm. That it is that is brilliant. That is the absolute best part of this movie is is Dr. Lilith Ritter. 100%. 100%. And then, not only do you have a perfect casting decision in Kate Blanchett to play this super powerful, strong woman to take down these men, you pick the ultimate pretty boy douchebag in Bradley Cooper. <laughs> and I say that as a term of endearment because yes. I love Bradley Cooper. He was a... The, I think the only way it could have been better might have been Tom Hardy, but Tom Hardy isn't pretty enough for it. Yeah. It was perfect casting all across the board. I know you you mentioned uh, Willem Dafoe and Ron Perlman and their and their parts as well. 
Um, but, you know, Bradley Cooper is someone who is obviously a very attractive man, uh, but someone who has, you know, a, a way of drawing people in. Um, he's very charismatic, as you see from things like A Star is Born, where he's uh, the performer type. But he's also able to play that kind of um, quiet menace to it, you know, that desire to get what he wants at all costs. Um, everything that he does is believable from a character perspective. And you can really see all of these, um, you, you know, the the moments in which he flips that switch uh, and and crosses that point of no return, even though, as we find out in the flashback, that point of no return was the very start of the film when he's burning his dad's body after uh, moving things along with that whole hypothermia thing. So it's it, it's really, the, again, the thing that I love about Del Toro in particular is that he is so purposeful. Um, and he is credited on the screenplay on this as well. Um, so you know uh, that he had his hand in all of these different elements. And as a result, it all ties together. Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine um, any casting change that I would have made. I, I think that all it all serves the ultimate goal. Um, and I, yeah, like, like I said, I had a blast the entire way through. Uh, I am not rating this film better than power of the dog because I'm not rating any film that came out in 2021 better than power of the dog. That's, uh, that still is my number one, even having watched a couple other films that I really, really enjoyed, uh, since then. But I mean, this one's still very much up there for me because everything about it works, uh, even if it doesn't necessarily surprise. Right. I, I agree. And and my criticism, like I said, it comes from having to compare this to, you know, Power of the Dog. It, it is very difficult to compare the two of them in that way and it be fair to Nightmare Alley because in another year where Power of the Dog doesn't exist, this movie is probably, you know, it, it is going to be up there. The only problem is then there's some other just like straight Oscar bait movies that I think are just going to shine brighter than it in general. Um, it it struggled its opening weekend when it came out, um, partly due to the fact that it is a very adult-oriented, adult-themed movie. And it also came out the same week as, uh, as Spider-Man No Way Home, which... Uh, is a mistake. I don't think any movie theater should ever try to put out a movie against any Marvel movie uh, if they want it to make money. Um, but like super high praise. You know, there are a lot of critics that really liked it. Martin Scorsese came out and said that he thought everyone, um, you know, should should seek out this movie and try to you know give it a watch because Del Toro is so good at it and it's such a a great homage to sort of the film noir genre. Um, but yeah, I. I just I I can't I can't let go of Power of the Dog did the style movie just a little bit better and and I know it's probably annoying at this point which is why I did want to take that you know moment to speak up and and really give Kate Blanchett uh, you know all the props in the world I know she is not nominated um for an Oscar for this movie it might be a mistake sure should have been watched. sure should have been. Uh, I, not that, uh, Kirsten Dunst isn't great and I wouldn't rather give her the win, but there is no way that, uh, 
she should not be uh, top five. That's just crazy. Well, Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst isn't. Uh, she's nominated for best supporting actress, not best actress. Oh yeah, I mean, I would consider Kate Blanchett so. a uh, supporting actress as well, though. Like I, okay. I, I, I think this is a film with a lead actor and multiple supporting actresses. But I would not say that there is a uh, an actress that's on screen enough to be in the lead actress category. Which, not not to to get too much into the weeds on Oscar talk, but I do believe is a mistake that they make that is sometimes frustrating. Is they just try to um, there there isn't as much a distinction on like when does a best actress become a supporting actress or vice versa. Um, and as a result, you like, it, it feels like they just try to say, well, this is the actress with the most lines. And so they're the lead actress, regardless of whether the performance in the script and, and how it fills into the plot, as far as pushing things forward, whether that is the lead or not. Um, it's a little bit, um, it's unfortunate. I, I think that we try to, pigeonhole certain things because best actress category i i think it was going to be very difficult to break through um i obviously i i still would have put her there but like that that is a category that is stacked in such a way that like i get why that would have been a tougher sell but best supporting actress i think she absolutely could have been there and arguably should have been there um and certainly she would get my vote if she was in the category uh, as it stands, I'll give it to Kirsten Dunst because I, I think she did a great job as Rose in Power of the Dog. But um, I, I also just think that Judy Dench, I, I love you, Judy Dench. You're not even the best supporting actress in Belfast. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Ouch, that's, shots fired. Um, I, I'm just I'm just quickly looking back at, at what I watched last year. And honestly, yeah, this this actually ends up being number two for me, despite how critical I was. Just because, I mean, last year, I, I did not watch a lot of movies last year and certainly did not watch a lot that are, you know, at this level of, uh, of you know, cinematography. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to say like, oh, you know what was better than this? Shang-Chi. Like, Shang-Chi was good, but it wasn't better than this movie. No. Um, how, how do they fall? I know I was a little higher on, on that movie than you, but I, I don't think that was better than this either. Mm-hmm. My, it's a good, it was a good movie. Yeah. It was a good movie. My, my top five of the year, uh, heading into the Oscars. And like I said, I have a couple Oscar films I haven't seen yet. Um, that maybe will, uh, move this slightly. Uh, I put, um, Nightmare Alley as my number four movie of the year. Uh, my top three right now is Power of the Dog at number one. Drive My Car at number two. Incredible film. If you are the kind of person that can watch a three-hour Japanese film. So damn good. Um, And number three would be French Dispatch, which I know you have a negative amount of interest in because Wes Anderson is uh, the kind of person that you either love or hate. But I'm in the love category, and he was talking about a weird journalism magazine, so it was always going to be for me. Um and I guess number five right now would be uh, James Bond, No Time to Die. Like, that film was great. I, I, I'm I perfectly happy having that as my number five film of the year, at least right now. Uh, I will I will see if, if anything can uh, surpass it. But I can tell you that uh, Belfast did not. Um, and neither did, mm. un- unfortunately, the uh, worst person in the world or the new Macbeth. Uh, none of those were able to to quite crack it there. So um, it definitely an interesting field overall. And I, I'm 
very much looking forward to seeing uh, Flea and Licorice Pizza before we talk next. Um, and I'll, I'll let you know how those go. Yeah, I, I do. I will say it is a very interesting field to look at um, just across the board. A couple of, you know, more, you know, traditional. Mu- is is Belfast a musical? Is there enough music in it for it to be considered a musical? No, there's not any okay. musical numbers in Belfast. Um, oh. Belfast is uh, uh, going through the troubles in Ireland and the uh, the IRA violence uh, through the lens of gotcha. a... Uh, a kid uh, that is kind of growing up in that that time and seeing the problems with his parents and how they work through that and the family and you know do we stay do we go things of that nature. Um, mm. If you want to, music- I guess those trailers don't do it justice. Then. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good film. Like it's fine. I I enjoyed it. I, I would say it's very good. I, I wouldn't say that it's great. Um, and I, I don't know, West Side Story is there, but I was in West Side Story. Uh, my uh, ex-fiance made me watch the uh, West Side Story uh, film from the 1970s so many times. I, I could not be more familiar with what is happening in that film. And so that one didn't necessarily catch me. Don't Look Up is a very hard sell for me. Uh, Coda is the film I think is the most Oscar Beatty of everything in the category. So, um, I don't know. It's certainly going to be interesting to see what the Oscars end up leaning towards. I am a little bit concerned because the last couple years have largely been quite reasonable and that almost never happens. So (laughs) I, the fact that we've had two in a row makes me feel like, uh, we're heading towards a bit of a dud this year. So. I guess. Do, do you we'll see? I, I mean, we have we have a little bit more time here, so I guess since this is coming out the day after the Oscars, I, do we want to make any predictions just just casually? I know we haven't seen all of the movies. I certainly have not. Um, but just from what I've what I've read, sort of the trends that I've seen, is there a chance Power of the Dog does lose this, or is this going to be a, a you know best picture for Netflix? I. Honestly, uh, there was some early buzz that maybe made it seem like it, it could get there, and it still could. It's it's won enough things elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of buzz right now that indicates that Coda could get it, and there's a lot of buzz right now that Don't Look Up could get it. And both of those things are, are films that make the Oscars feel better about themselves, right? Don't Look Up is the, we care about climate change, you know? We're we're uh, progressive and, and woke, TMCR. Um and and so like that that's always in play and and coda is the um the the story of uh, a child of, of deaf adults um the only hearing member of a deaf family who struggles to balance uh her attempts to uh help the family out and her own aspirations of you know i like music and my parents can't hear music and so that leads to conflict and um like I, it sounds exhausting to be quite frank with you. Like I just <laughs> like it's it's a, a very Oscar Beatty film, right? It's like oh look at look at how how deep we are in this deep, this pathos for this uh, this performance, and I'm I'm sure there are some good performances in there, but like I, I I don't I don't know what would have to happen for me to be interested in that film. Uh, 
we would be doing a movie podcast where we needed to make predictions about who wins best picture <laughs> and to watch all of these movies, which thankfully we don't have to do because there is not enough goddamn money on this planet to make me want to watch Licorice Pizza. Which I, I don't think is going to win anything, but I am curious to see it just because the discourse around it has been weird more than anything. I, I, I don't, it's a weird looking movie. It's a weird film. Um, but I like weird. Weird is different. Weird is uh, engaging. So I, I don't mind weird. Um, but yeah, I, I do. As of right now, I believe that we are going to be disappointed and that it will go to either Coda or Don't Look Up. And I'm going to, uh, just to put a, a prediction on it, I'm going to say that it goes to, uh, I'm going to say that it goes to Don't Look Up. And I think Jane Campion for Power of the Dog gets Best Director, which I think is fair. I think Benedict Cumberbatch still has a very good chance to win Best Actor, but I think it will go to Will Smith as in mm-hmm. King Richard. Um, I, I, I think Jessica Chastain seems like the favorite to win Best Actress, uh, which The Eyes of Tammy Faye, bad film, incredible performance by Jessica Chastain. So totally fine with that. Um, if that's the way it goes, though, I know my roommate will be pulling for uh, Kristen Stewart to get it for uh, her role as Princess Diana in Spencer. Um, beyond that, I feel like I lose the ability to make hard predictions, though I really, really hope that Drive My Car gets something um, because Drive My Car is so good. Um, it, it's uh, the kind of film that made me argue with myself from earlier in the film, you know, that, that ability of like you present it one way and it's like, Oh, but you, you should do this or how are you not considering that or whatever? And then they get hard on themselves for it. And it's like, no, that's not fair because this other nuanced thing. And you're like, Oh, this is complicated. There's, there are things going on here. Um, so I would love to see it get adapted screenplay, even though, if it goes to power of the dog, I would not be mad in any way, shape or form. Um, probably best original screenplay is going to go to Belfast. Um, if it goes to worst person in the world, I will be genuinely angry because that film is very not good outside of the performance of the lead actress. So um, we'll see uh, what, what is your wish list beyond just seeing uh, power of the dog do well? Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I really would like to see Power of the Dog do well. Um, I would probably, I, I feel like if you're talking about Coda or Don't Look Up, which one makes, you know, the Academy feel better about themselves, I feel like Don't Look Up is too on the nose of just like, hey, we got to reward ourselves, guys. And I feel like they would go with Coda um, just because I think it's a better story. I think from what I've read about Don't Look Up, the sort of like, oh, we care about the environment feels extremely forced and that movie is unintentionally too much of a comedy for it to be taken seriously. Um, I do think you're right that that, uh, Campion will win for Best Director to sort of give the rub to Power of the Dog after that. Um, Best Actor, I, I would put all the money in the world on Will Smith. Again, I think the story is just too strong for them to tell. And it, it's very clearly was a passion project for him. Um, and, you know, poor Cumberbatch is going to kind of get screwed out of that movie. Uh, best actress. I know almost nothing about those movies other than what you've told me. Again, Chastain does seem like the, uh, 
seem like the sort of obvious frontrunner from what I've seen. Uh, supporting actor and actress, I would say probably, again, Power of the Dog, uh, either Cody Smith-McPhee or Jesse Plemons, and then uh, Kristen Dunst as a supporting actress. Um, and then I, I don't really want to touch on the screenplay stuff just because, again, I don't know enough about any of those other movies to really you know, give them any credit one way or another. Um, and yeah, like Drive My Car is probably going to win the International Film Award and they might just have to be okay with that, which is incredibly disappointing. And it's weird, but like because of how well foreign films have done in the past couple of years, Drive My Car is sort of something that I want to explore, whether it's something I really dedicate the time to to want to talk about with you on the podcast. I'm not sure yet. But it is something that's like in my periphery of, you know, the next rainy day that I have a day off. Maybe I'll sit down and I'll, I'll give the, uh, the time that it really takes, uh, you know, to give that a shot. Because as it being a foreign language film, I do know that I would have to give way more time and attention to it than I would probably some of these other movies. Yes. I can tell you one movie that ain't fucking winning anything, and that's going to be Dune. Timothy Chalamet, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> I I gotta tell you, man, uh, don't be surprised if it wins production design or even uh, film editing. Like, there there is some stuff in Dune where I, I just feel like from a design perspective, uh, it's going to be given a lot of love. Um, I obviously don't agree with it because I, I didn't uh love the film but i i think there are certainly some production elements of it where like you know we we talked about the world building and how it like it looks great like there are there are a lot of things that work there um so i'm just i'm preparing myself to be disappointed on that front as well for sure it is in listen play. it's it's very nice that they're going to be able to put on the boxes how many awards they were nominated for and that they won you know, production. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It'll look very impressive when they can put nominated for ten Oscars yeah. and not have won one that actually matters <laughs> to like the normal viewing public. Which is I don't want to take anything away from production crews that work behind the scenes, but I think if someone was like, hey, dude won an Oscar, they'd be like, wait, they won Best Picture? And they'd be like, no, 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 it was best makeup. And a normal person would be like, Oh, well, good for them. I, I, I will say um, I, I want to push back on that slightly only because that is something that the Oscars, I think, believe as well. I don't know if you've seen, uh, but they've they've cut a lot of the awards from the show itself in order to leave more room for like skits and other presentation things. And I really hate how they are trying to position some awards as being better or more important than others. You need all of these elements to make the best films out there. And all of these people, like the whole reason we're here for the Oscars is, is an industry show to recognize all of these different achievements. And the people who only care about which one wins best picture and nothing else those people aren't watching the Oscars in 2022 anyway, right? Like Oscars viewership has gone down every year because the stuff that they add is filler that they think will go viral or that they think 
um, will make them look smarter or whatever else. Um, no one cares. It's, it's not the reason that the people who care about the Oscars care about the Oscars. Um, but I, uh, I will agree with you that like, certainly, uh, whatever Dune wins, um, that's not going to be my takeaway from the night. Um, cause I don't think it's going to win best picture or like the biggest categories, but I, I do wish like, I'll put it this way for a casual movie person to say like, Oh yeah, there are certain awards that matter and certain awards that don't fine. Uh, for the industry awards themselves to be doing it. That one left a bad taste in my mouth. And it's to the point where like, this might be the first year that my roommate just boycotts watching the Oscars. We might have people over. We're going to have a, a few friends over on Sunday, but we might just follow it on social media rather than watching the show in real time because f- fuck that, man. I, like, why else are we here if not to recognize all these things? I, I don't know. That's a real pet peeve of mine. Um, I This is not an argument in Dune's favor, but more a frustration that the Oscars are focusing on. Um, their Their focus is weird and I don't care for it. Absolutely. And and I'm not coming from a personal standpoint. I, I completely agree with you. Everyone should be celebrated for what they do to make these films, because let's be honest, if there wasn't people back there doing makeup, the actors wouldn't be on screen. If there weren't people back there running the cameras or doing the animation or the, the, the you know visual effects, the 3D animation behind the scenes, all that jazz, movies wouldn't exist. Like we are so far beyond where it's, hey, let's just put one director, one camera person, and we'll just, you know, do everything on site with no editing and no set building or anything. Like, everyone that works behind the scenes deserves their day in the sun and the spotlight to be on them. Because, like, movies wouldn't exist without them. They are as important as the actors on stage and the directors themselves. Uh, Chase, I won't be watching them. I will be, uh, you know, taking everything in from social media because I'm going to be playing Curse of Strahd with my D&D group like I normally do every other Sunday. Uh, But enough about that. This has been one hell of a podcast, and I'm glad we got a little bit of Oscar talk here at the end. If there are any of these movies coming out of the Oscars that, you know, you you listeners really think that we should take a watch and, and really discuss, please reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to watch, because now that we're post-Oscar season, I mean, we can definitely catch up on a lot of these movies, or I can now browbeat Chase for the next six months into forcing him to watch the Batman because I absolutely <laughs> have to talk about that movie with someone. Okay. Chase, where can the good folks at home find you? Uh, you can find me being uh, dragged into watching the Batman at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. Uh, you can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Um, and, and we will see, uh, I, I love that we're both in Curse of Strahd games right now. Um, probably very different games, I'm sure, but um at some point perhaps uh a D live play thing could be fun i don't know we'll talk about it at some point in time but i i do uh i i do love um you know what we've been able to to do here in our expanded uh network of shows and if you enjoy this uh check out steam cleaners we we've had a couple guests in the last couple episodes that are absolutely worth your time and uh, we, uh, have the K-pop shenanigans podcast, which is also, 
uh, been a lot of fun to, to come back to. So, um, uh, hopefully you stick around and enjoy it all. Absolutely. There is a lot of good stuff on the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. I hope that you like to enjoy it. You know, pick and choose. You don't have to listen to every episode, but we would appreciate it if you did. You guys can always find me at C80s underscore LOL. And until next time, goodbye, Internet.